1: So welcome to today's episode of Unleashing Brilliance. Today I have the awesome opportunity to have a great conversation with Wei Yo, who is the founder of OIC Cambodia, an initiative that aims to establish speech therapy as a profession in Cambodia. Now I met Wei at an uh, event that we were both speaking at a few months ago and his story, his passion, his determination to make a difference was incredibly inspiring and as a result I just had to have this conversation with him. He has a BA in Physiotherapy from the University of Sydney and an MA in Development Studies from the University of New South Wales. But what is inspiring about Waze is the significant amount of global experience um, of the work that he does which is fundamentally about helping the broader global community. He's volunteered with people with disabilities in Vietnam, he's interned in India, he studied Mandarin in Beijing and Milt yaks in Mongolia. And he started OIC, which we will talk about later, in 2013, and handed that over to the leadership of a local Cambodian team in 2017. He doesn't stop there, though. He is currently co-founding another organisation called OMBO, which is a social enterprise bridging the gap for rural children to access allied health services. Um, Welcome, Wei. It's wonderful to have you on the
0: podcast. Thanks so much, Janine, and that's a really... um incredible introduction not sure if I'm worthy of it but oh you,
1: you uh, are you man. absolutely are now before we get into the incredible work that you are doing right now I'm really curious what what is it that you wanted to be when you grew up and why
0: yeah mm-hmm. um, I, when I was a kid this is an unusual one I guess uh, I wanted to be a pediatrician mm-hmm. so uh, I'm the youngest of three brothers. And my understanding of why I wanted to be a paediatrician is that because I didn't have any younger siblings to spoil and turn me off children and being around children every day, that I ended up thinking as I was growing up, oh, I want to become someone who works primarily with children. Um, And of course, in a medical field, because let's face it, that's the dream in an Asian family. Um, They were the two combinations that made me come up with paediatrician.
1: Wow. And you're using some of that interest now, aren't you, with your work you're doing? You haven't stepped away from it, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been interested in in health as a general topic. That's why I studied physiotherapy. But I I actually worked as a physio for two years before realising that that kind of work wasn't where my skill set and interests lie. And part of that, I think, is a realisation that doing the work face-to-face with individuals is a very particular skill set that I just didn't really have. So I think now being able to integrate some of those lessons and even being able to think a little bit like a clinician would, um, despite the fact that I haven't practiced for over a decade, um, it has been really helpful with the work that we're doing. And then now being able to think about, okay, how do I use these skills and lessons that I've learned to try and impact um, a larger number of people?
1: So what created the shift for you, Wei, in terms of moving from uh, the clinical work Mm -hmm. to shifting and pursuing something else? What made that change happen?
0: I mean, I'm sure like a lot of people, it was uh, not logical at the time, but it only makes sense in retrospect. So what happened was I I was working as a physiotherapist in Sydney, and then I decided this isn't really right for me. So I'd saved up a lot of money and ended up going overseas and I travelled for six months in predominantly Southeast Asia. And then I ended up uh, in Vietnam. And when I was in Vietnam, I somehow came across this orphanage that needed a bit of help. Now, these days, orphanage tourism is better known to not be a good thing for people to do for a number of various reasons. But at that time, it wasn't really something that people talked about. <clears throat> and what I can recall is four months after arriving into uh, Vietnam, a typhoon came through the town, lifted the roof off this orphanage that I was volunteering at, and the dorms were so wet that the children had to sleep on the wooden classroom tables. And what I remember mostly about feeling at this time was that the the most predominant emotion I could feel was not what I would expect. So I didn't feel compassion or pity even. I felt helpless. Mm. And I think feeling that at an age of 24 was really quite... Um, important for me to feel very useless and, and not re- really be able to know how to help best. And what happened was it actually kickstarted me on a journey that's still going, of course, to sort of question, how do we actually provide impact to people who are less fortunate than us? How do we do it in a way that actually makes sense? And I think those lessons and that journey has been pretty much what's, um, you know, been carried out through a lot of the work that I've been doing for the last 12 years.
1: Yeah, well, we'll definitely coming on to that um, in a second. I want to take you back, though, on your LinkedIn profile. You tell a wonderful story mm. about a little boy named Roger. Can you expand on that story and, and how that impacted you as well at such an early age?
0: Yeah, so I mean, the story is that it was actually my first day in uh, kindergarten. And you can, re- you can probably all empathise and remember with how that sort of feels at the time and Uh, You know, being a young five-year-old boy, I was very wide-eyed and very obedient. And my teacher, Miss Pickering, said to me that the boy sitting next to me was someone that I had to help. And his name was Roger. And she said uh, that Roger can't see colours. So I had to help him with colouring in. And she said, you know, anytime you want to... He needs a blue pencil, you've got to take it out of the um, little basket for him. Anytime he needs a red pencil, we do the same. And then at the end of it, she said she actually asked, can you do that? And I think that's really interesting. I remember that really clearly. It was a choice that I had at the time. And of course, being obedient, five-year-old, I said, yeah, sure. Um, What I learned from that experience, doing that for a year was really about difference. I think I was really exposed to the fact that not everybody is like me. Um, Some people do things differently. And then for the rest of us, sometimes all it takes is a little bit of help to have someone participate fully. Um, Having that exposure, I wouldn't have called a disability at the time. I didn't really know what that word meant. But it was really pivotal as a moment for me, living in a very, um, you know, fairly privileged life, really, to then be exposed to this difference and and realising that I could do something on a small level and then perhaps later on at a bigger level to try and help people who who needed it.
1: And so you're you're now absolutely doing things on a bigger level. can you share with our listeners a little bit more about what OIC Cambodia is and its mm-hmm. aim, and equally the name, which mm-hmm. I've just discovered, is not just a a a, number, a three-letter acronym standing for something. Can you please share a little bit more about
0: what? I, I, I detest do? acronyms, Janine. I'm not. A
1: <laughs> Me too.
0: Yeah, and um, you'd be amazed with the number of charities, uh, well, particularly in Cambodia how many acronyms they are and how long and convoluted the full name is. So when we came up with a name for OIC, we wanted to do something that was a bit fun. So the focus of OIC is is to do with speech therapy, as you mentioned in the intro. Um, And OIC stands for the moment when you don't understand something and then suddenly you do. And then you say, oh, I see. And that's what speech therapy is about for me. It's a lot about connection, uh, mutual understanding and, and being connected to the world around you. Um, But to answer the the original question, how did it all start? uh, Another similar sort of story, I guess, to the one with with Roger, which is I I went to Cambodia initially in 2012 and I'd heard that there was a big need in disability and that was my area of expertise. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go there and see if I can find something that works. What I haven't mentioned before yet, sorry, is that between that time in Vietnam to Cambodia, I'd been looking I'd really been looking to try and find and understand what could possibly work. And I hadn't really been successful. And then I got to Cambodia and I started working with a Cambodian organisation. And what they did was they took staff out on motorbikes and they drove these motorbikes through really dusty roads in Cambodia and they drive up to 70 kilometres a day. And I'd sit in the back of these motorbikes, uh, you know, um, swallowing (laughs) mouthfuls of dust and, and then, what they do is they go to homes of children with disabilities and then they give them basic services to try and make them more independent. And I saw something which was really great, which is that local people creating change for themselves. And then I met this boy who, is, who was 10 at the time, his name is Ling, uh, through this organization. Now, because Ling had cerebral palsy, which is brain damage around the time of birth, uh, he, he slowed his speech. And as a result, because he didn't speak clearly, people assumed he would never be able to go to school. And that meant that despite being 10, he'd never set foot in a school at all. Um, So what we decided to do at that time was to try and address his communication because we thought if we could just get his communication better, maybe we could learn whether or not he has, you know, decent enough intelligence to be a contributing member of society. So we trained one of my colleagues, Purong, in very basic, speech therapy and then she worked with Ling for a few months. Um, I come back to that village um, a little bit later and I hear that at the age of 12, Ling is going to school for the first time and then a couple of months later I return to hear even better news which is that Ling is not just attending school, he's excelling. Ling is coming second in his class. So yeah. I, what I learned from this story is really the power of speech therapy and how important it can be to change someone's life. But then the next thing that I learned was that Ling was not alone. In fact, despite one in 25 people needing speech therapy, uh, there is not one single Cambodian speech therapist in the whole country. Not one. Mm. And this means that over half a million people are perhaps unable to communicate well with their friends or family, uh, maybe even go to school or get jobs. And not only that, but also an equal number uh, have muscle weakness and can't swallow safely, safely. So food and liquid goes into the lungs, they can get pneumonia and they can die. Um, and this this challenge just seemed, I think, too big. You know, 600,000 people and not one person can service this population. Um, if you're wondering, what comparison would we'll be in Australia, we have at least, I would say, 10,000 speech therapists, roughly. There's 7,500 registered and probably a lot more that are not registered. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, you'd, you'd find more speech therapists within a uh, one kilometer radius of you than in an entire country of 16 million people
1: wow so how did you go about doing something about it you made a point there of going oh my gosh this is a massive problem mm. um and the majority of people would almost go it's it's too hard i, I don't know how little or me can even make an impact so Two questions. One, how did you push through that fear, if it existed at all? And two, how, how did you go about solving the solution or finding the solution to the problem?
0: Yeah, I think fear is is very um, human. So I, I always believe that you should never ignore fear or even doubt. And I love that quote. There's a Voltaire quote that says, um, "Doubt is not a pleasant condition, but absolute certainty is madness." I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but Um, You know, there's always been elements of doubt and can we do it and make it? But I think with this one, it was just so self-evident that this was a problem that no one else was addressing. And when I studied at university in development studies, we learned that there's a system in the world on how we can address issues like this. And the system is top down. What I learned being on the ground was that the system doesn't work like that. It's just individual people who decide they want to do something about the problem. Um, But then in answer to the second question, what what happened at the beginning, I think we started with principles. The principles were, we want to do something in this country that is long-lasting and that goes beyond just simply giving. We want it to be self-sustaining. And the second thing which follows that is that we have to have an organisation which plans its own redundancy which plans its own exit. And that's based around some of the logic behind as a physiotherapist. If you think about, when you see a physiotherapist, there's a difference between that physio addressing symptoms and solving underlying problems, right? So your problems are solved when that physio has made himself or herself redundant, when you're not seeing that clinician anymore. But that logic isn't applied to international charities for some reason. And so what what I wanted to do was make sure that we weren't like the rest we wanted to be um, not self-serving we wanted to set up a way that we can plan our own exit from the country and then um, that that changes the nature of the work that we're doing so now we're no longer talking about just doing fly-in fly-out visits or um, you know giving a man to fish type stuff um, we're doing work that really is creating a structural change in cambodia and then it's owned by the cambodian people in particular the cambodian government
1: Mm. So, success is so far where where have you got to with your mm. big picture vision? How close are you getting to that
0: solution and, and I think this is something just people just generally keep in mind is that success for various things means different things mm. uh, so for this kind of work in this type of climate, success personally, I believe is survival if you 've survived five and a half years as we have, trying to tackle a problem which is large but sort of invisible, doesn't necessarily have the backing of any major donors, including, you know, WHO or UNICEF or governments, and you've created all of this from nothing, that's a sign of success. But we have an end goal that I mentioned. In 2030, we want to see 100 Cambodian speech therapists integrated into the public sector. And that's where our marker of success will be by 2030. So I think the question for us now is, how are we tracking towards that goal? And I think we're actually doing quite well. So we plan to open the first university course in Cambodia in speech therapy, which is um, a huge deal by 2020. There's just a lot of work that goes behind logistics. How do you start a university course in a country that doesn't have that profession? And then I think what we've done so far in terms of success is set up a structure that this organisation can deliver on its uh, long-term objectives, while also at the same time impacting lives along the way. So I would mm-hmm. say we've already impacted over um, you know, 10,000 lives, roughly, of people through various training programs and, and pilot programs and so forth. But that's not you know, really, that's scratching the surface of the 600,000 we want to influence. Mm-hmm. So we still still a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, another measure of success, I think also, and this is just more broadly now about leadership is We have this idea of leadership that is very, in my opinion, very short term. You know, we look at leaders and we try and measure their success around how they're delivering this year. You know, I saw something uh, just this morning about about our current prime minister who's been in the job, what, two or three weeks, I think. You know, and and just to think that you can do anything in that amount of time is pretty, pretty absurd. Mm
1: -hmm. So I think
0: a measure of success is what happens after you leave. And for me, I, as you mentioned, I handed off the leadership to OIC, to Chenda Net, who's a Cambodian uh, woman in 2017. And that organisation, under her watch, is doing better than it was before. Mm. And to me, that's a sign of success and it, it's something that makes me very proud as the former leader and the founder.
1: As it should. I think um, what happens when you leave is an awesome way to consider the measure Of success, um, and if it can perform even better, um, then you've had that impact and created that ripple to allow other people to succeed. Before we move out of Cambodia and onto the work that you're doing there, I'm imagining that there have been, maybe even continue to be, um, significant hurdles along the way. Um, Can you share an example of where? It did just get really really hard and you had to dig deep and what you did um, to overcome that particular challenge
0: uh, well um, it's a shame we only have a limited amount of time because I could talk about that topic for today. <laughs>
1: just
0: one or two little hurdles yeah there's been quite a few so I think for most nonprofits like any business it's the same thing your, your biggest problem is cash flow mm. really and we've had times where we've had 10 days of funding left and we've got people's, um, you know, families to feed. Um, and no, nobody in the organisation has ever been paid late, I will say. That's that's one thing I'm quite proud of, um, except for the founder who wasn't paid at various times, but that's a different topic. <laughs> um, so I think being able to pull yourself out of those uh, moments is really, is, is a question of who's willing to, to stride with you, I guess, to take a risk. And being able to obviously talk about something which is perhaps quite intangible as well. But there's another one, actually, which is the, the handing off the leadership and then moving back to Australia. Um, that, to me, was emotionally probably more difficult than actually starting the organisation in the first place. This process of letting go and the process of transition, I think. Um, and that does continue to still be a problem now. And of course, being being in an environment like Cambodia and being so driven by the purpose of what we're doing and seeing that poverty up close, and then coming back to a country that isn't that connected to real problems, you know, and and, and the problems that we face here in Australia, I'm not saying not I'm not saying everybody doesn't have problems. What I'm saying is, in general, the problems are on a much smaller scale compared to overseas. Um, that's that's been quite challenging, and the way I've sort of tried to get around that, I guess, is to be uh, quite um, self-empathetic uh, and just to be a little bit aware that it's going to take a bit of time for this, for this to happen and to address any sort of mental health issues as quickly as possible. Mm. And I think that's one thing that people don't really talk about much in terms of founders and people that are you know really purpose-driven and um, is the emotional toll of all of this work is, is very high. So I just wish that this was something that we discussed a bit more.
1: Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm going to come back to that, actually. But before I do, um, what what do you think you learned about yourself through that whole experience of working uh, on the ground in Cambodia? What did you learn about yourself that has made you a better person and or leader?
0: Mm. I mean, one of the keys to leadership is self-awareness. So I think if you're not learning about yourself in the process, you're probably not. You're probably doing yourself and your organisation a disservice. I became very aware of my own limitations. I think that's probably one of the key things I learned. And, of course, my strengths as well. But mm-hmm. the limitations for me are um, we are now in a stage, the organisation is in a stage of implementation. And that's very difficult, very difficult to do. And I'm you know, secretly, or not so secretly, glad that I'm not overseeing that phase. Mm-hmm. I was good in the growth stage and getting it started. But in, when it comes time to actually get the work done... That's not really my strength. And to do with and anything that sort of um, is to do with details or the boring program stuff, that's when I start to naturally clock out. <laughs> so I think being just really aware of that. And then that, that's helped me with the new project to be aware of that and then to surround myself with people that can accommodate for those pretty massive weaknesses.
1: Yeah, your your comment there about self-awareness, I was actually uh, delivering a keynote this morning and that was one of the conversations that we were having around great leaders have to, particularly in this crazy world that we're living in, become even more self-aware of how they're being and the impact that we, they are having and um, I just want to acknowledge something that you said where You actually stated the realisation around what you were great at and equally what you were not so great at and how you've now subsequently put that awareness into um, the project that you're now working on. Let's just go back for a second to your comment about the emotional toll of this work that you are doing. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means to you and what you mean by saying that?
0: Yeah, so at at various points in my life I've felt quite perhaps demotivated to go to work. But with this particular project, OIC, that was never the case. I was jumping out of bed in the morning, so obviously it gave me a lot of purpose. And then, of course, you you just do what it takes to get the job done. So, for example, I had to fly back to Australia uh, once a month for about a week, for almost three years straight, I'd say. And so the physical toll on that was quite a lot, and then the emotional toll of not really having a, a, a base, a stable base. Um, and then you've got the issue around the, the organisation having ups and downs. And, of course, you're riding those ups and downs as the founder a lot as well. That's quite common. Um, so all of that combines, I think, to, to create a place where probably you're very effective at your work in, the, in that moment. You know, because I'm really connected to the work. I'm feeling the emotional connection. I'm doing a good job when I'm, when I'm there. But then what happened afterwards was it all kind of fell apart because that, that period had ended. And then I, I sort of look back, at, look, sorry, look in, inward. I'm like, okay, what's left? So I think that this is a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because you, you want to be so passionate and so in your work that it's always going to succeed perhaps. But you, at the same time, you have to remain a human. And that's, the, that's that balance, I think, that delicate balance, which is really hard to form.
1: Mm. so the delicate balance between actually looking after yourself and being as match fit as you possibly can as well as continuing to give of yourself to help that vision come true or that that realize that that vision that idea that you have
0: i think so and also not just to look after yourself but also to be able to look after people around you mm. because i don't want to be that guy who's you know, let's say 80 or 90 or whatever, hopefully, touch wood, mm. who's, who has got a lot of achievements and and has been able to do work that's affected people across the world but hasn't been able to be a good person to the people around him. Mm. So I want to be able to do both.
1: And even the that travel intensity that you shared of pretty much one week every month doing a massive interstate inter uh, a global international trip and then having to come back. I mean, um, I'm sure you have many uh, colleagues in big organisations around the world that are travelling um, as much, if not more, um, within that corporate environment. Um, and you can only begin to imagine the toll that that has on people physically and emotionally.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's really it's one of those things that you think is quite glamorous before you start doing it. And That's you're right. Just, no, I don't want that anymore.
1: That's right. Now, you've got a, a new project that you're working on. Um, what's this one all about?
0: Yeah, so when I, when I came back to Australia and I'd handed off OIC and I was doing bits and pieces, but that wasn't the majority of my week, I, I realised that in Australia we have an issue around access to allied health services, including speech therapy as well. So in Cambodia, no speech therapists in the whole country. In Australia, certain parts of the country seem to lack that access. And what I found was that a lot of those places are rural and remote parts of Australia. And then looking into it deeper, I was just stunned, really, just to see places like Griffith in New South Wales, where there are thirty thousand people in the city, ah, uh, town, sorry, and there are only two speech therapists, and no occupational therapists registered with NDIS, so able to provide disability services. This is incredible when you think about the number of people who need the service. So what happens are people are either driving three, four, five, six hours to find services, or clinicians are flying in and out. And then what I also noticed was that in the cities, there are a lot of clinicians, I think, who can't necessarily leave the home to work in a clinic. So a good example would be one we're working with at the moment who has children and she herself has a physical disability. Um, and therefore, it was a simple case of, I think, trying to work out how we could match the two. You know, How do we get these clinicians in cities to work with these children in rural areas and do it through an online platform? Um, and I've been really fortunate, I think, to find two great co-founders, which is going back to this issue of, of emotional toll, a big change, and I was very conscious of the fact that when I did OIC, it was one founder, and it's not really ideal, but that wasn't through lack like, of trying to find another, just wasn't anyone there available at the time. And then when I came back and looked at this issue with Umbo, I decided um, I need to find people who are as into this idea as me and also are able to cover for those weaknesses. Mm.
1: Um, tell me a bit about the name quickly
0: so Jumbo is the tip of the shield um so the first line of defense for children in rural and remote areas who need access to health services
1: yeah i love all the genius behind your names i'm curious about that transition as well from being a sole founder to now essentially uh, a co-founder with uh, two people on board with you how do you manage that relationship And who has the final say in the decisions that are being made to the benefit of the startup?
0: There's no right or wrong answer to that last question, and it depends on the situation, I think. But to answer the first question, um, this comes back to the topic of leadership. What's the leader really all about? And I think the leader's not someone who tells people what to do. It's the leader's the one who asks a lot of questions. And I think also what I've learned more recently, actually, is a leader is the one who's able to ask uncomfortable questions, who's the most comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think with that, that's what I've the role that I've played with my two co-founders, which is really about, okay, how do we want to structure this so that everyone feels valued? And then what if there is a need for someone to make a final decision, how we can actually set that up? And these conversations we've had very early and very transparently. Because I hear so many stories of startups and um, uh, so forth that they're they, a couple of years down the line and then they're like, oh, we, we never had that conversation. Mm. And I really wish we'd structured differently because if we had the conversation, I would have. So I don't want us to be one of those groups. I want us to have the conversations early, even if they're uncomfortable now, because mm. they're only going to get more uncomfortable if we avoid them. Mm
1: have you got an example where it got so uncomfortable you still did it and the outcome actually was one for the better
0: uh I mean we're because we're a social enterprise so we're, we're starting this as a um as a business we might we're looking to actually register a charity um later but that's not the original that's not the first step so you know because I started this journey myself and then I found two other people they came a little bit later but By the time they arrived, the company was already registered under my name. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now we're in that process, I think, of, um, you know, making it official, putting their names on on the necessary pieces of paper and making them own the company with me, co-own. So this is a very touchy subject because there's just so much potential, I think, for things to to get messy now. Mm -hmm. But again, if we don't have the conversations that are open and honest now, uh, you know, three, four, five years' time someone will turn around and say, I don't feel like I've been um, properly compensated for my work, that's much worse.
1: Mm. I'm sure there's many people listening to this podcast and, and this conversation right now that are nodding their heads going, yes, that's what happened to me, or equally going, I must, I must do that now whilst I'm in start-up, early startup mode. So um, I totally agree with you. It's, it's having those uncomfortable conversations up front before they become an issue because, as we both know, you know, when everyone is highly motivated to the bigger picture goal and it's all sort of roses, unicorns and champagne. Everything's sweet. Mm. But it's when something uh, goes wrong that, that things can get challenging. So I'm really glad that you uh, put that into our conversation. Mm. Um, Wei, what are some of the choices that you've made um, over the years that you think have made you who you
0: are? Uh, there's a There's a quote which I'm sure someone else has probably already said on your podcast about the easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life.
1: Mm -hmm. So the
0: more difficult the choices or the route you choose to take, which is perhaps a difficult choice, can result in an easy life. But I think even if you're just thinking about, um, you know, what I'm doing now for me versus doing a job, you know, where where I've done that before, turned up, had a salary, had a boss, um, had a contract. Um, And I I do think about this sometimes, particularly when uh, cash flows (laughs) are a bit low. Like oh maybe I should have just been a you know a banker or whatever or engineer or something with a steady income, but then I think about well then I wouldn't be able to have almost complete autonomy. I wouldn't be able to um, you know do the things that I really want to do. I wouldn't be able to you know have these kind of conversations, meet people like yourself. Um, and I think that's the, the kind of choice that you choose to make because you know that it's going to be difficult, very mm-hmm. difficult, to make it work. But the alternative is, I think, much worse. Mm -hmm. I would, I would much rather live a life that is on my terms and doing the kinds of things that I want to do when I want to do it, and suffer, you know, with stability and financially and so on, than the opposite. Than to be financially stable but bored.
1: Mm -hmm. I can't imagine
0: anything worse.
1: So you're already making an impact on the planet and creating that ripple of change. What's if you had to think about the one thing that just warms your soul in terms of the work that you have done or the, the lives that you have impacted, what springs to mind?
0: Mm, That's a really good question. Um, uh, I would say mind. uh, This might seem like a funny answer, but mindset shift. Mm. So what, with the work that we're doing in Cambodia, it's just so different. You know, in the way that we've set it up with such a clear exit strategy, there are, to my knowledge, about three international, three charities in the world that have that level of clarity, of which we're one. So three out of how many tens of thousands.
1: Mm. So
0: it's a unique... Uh, way of doing things and and now I'm talking more so I'm actually doing a a TEDx talk this weekend
1: oh how exciting
0: (laughs) on this topic of how international charities can actually make themselves redundant by solving problems Mm. rather than addressing symptoms and this this idea of setting up your own redundancy is just so progressive I think that it's an idea that will happen but isn't one that people are comfortable with yet. But what I'd like to see is more people be able to uh, take that up and then implement it because I think it actually will provide more impact that way.
1: Why do you think people are scared of it?
0: It's, it's an idea that is deeply uncomfortable to not be needed. You know, we want to be needed in the world. And with, with charity in general, there is what I would call a hamster wheel where you, justif- you request funding And then you do the work and you justify why you should get more. And this hamster wheel keeps on repeating and repeating. So often doing charity work is more about keeping that wheel turning than actually providing impact and measuring that impact. Mm. Um, And then, of course, you know, in that process, the, the charities and the people working for them can personally benefit quite a lot. But, of course, that shouldn't be the reason why we do this work in the first place. So I think the, 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 sort of, uh, the way that it's set up is not really to try and stop it. And in some ways, you could look at this in a very you know, um, corporate way and say, there's no business case for charities to actually solve problems. Otherwise, what, what do they do next? So the business case is really to solve just to fix symptoms. Um, that's one way of looking at it, which I don't agree with, because I think when you actually make yourself redundant, what it means is that you're able to then do more because Mm. you're able to shift resources elsewhere and then influence and impact more people. Mm. There will always be problems in the world that we need to solve. So it's just a case of moving on from one to the next.
1: I'm curious, this concept of uh, setting up for your own redundancy, um, do you think that same thinking can translate into uh, leadership and organizations
0: Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, the, the question always came up about the founder, you know, me personally leaving the organisation. Is it too early? Is it too late? And, and when's the right time? The, which is a tough question to answer. There's no one answer. But for me, I would much rather err on the early side than the late side. Uh, as soon as the organisation was relatively stable, I was ready to hand off. And because the alternative, again, is, is the founder, myself, or whomever, being just really out of touch with reality and and also, you know, try to, try to uh, lead an organisation in a manner which is relevant to the beginning of that charity organisation or company, but not relevant to the now. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, a little bit jaded as well because oh. you've been through so much to get it that far oh. that you're not able to um, be even-handed about things anymore, too emotional about different topics. Oh. So I think trying to trying to set up redundancy early is really, really key.
1: I think even extending it to the bigger corporate Australia as a concept is it's something that's interesting in terms of setting yourself up to allow a new level of leadership to take over. But mm-hmm. the fear that you talked about of that being not needed, I'm wondering whether that's the same with certain levels of leadership. Um, not needed, and equally losing bonuses and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's quite an interesting concept. That's definitely worth thinking about. What do you love thinking about? What's what do you in your spare time love? Just cogitating and thinking about.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I was. I like to think about um, how, what you know. What what what's the point of this? This what's the point of this life? And what's the opportunity that we have? I guess to to influence and impact people in a better way, you know? So um, we only get one shot on this life, on this earth, sorry, I believe. And therefore, how do we best use our time to to do something that actually leaves the world in a better state than it was to begin with? Um, So, you know, I always talk about this. When we see a problem and we see someone suffering, we feel an emotional reason that we need to react. And that's very normal, it's very human, we're emotional beings. And then hopefully at some point we take an action. But in between that moment of emotion to action, that's the most crucial part. You know, when do, what do we decide what to do? And then in, in this particular case, when to stop doing it? But I think a lot of people and a lot of charities don't actually get past that. And that's why you see a lot of charity work that's very emotionally driven. It's not rational. Whereas if I said to you, you know, organisations need to exile the countries and explain why, it's a very rational, almost truistic argument. So I think that, that's an area that I'm really interested in really is like how do we move from purely emotional action and giving to rational, logical, sensible actions?
1: Mm, well, I there's so many nuggets in what you've shared. Um, Before I ask my final question, I just want to sum up some key things that you've talked about. Um, This concept of the choice that we have, which you started off at the beginning of this podcast talking about and you've wrapped it up again at the end in terms of we all have a choice as to what we do and how we behave to help others. And whether you are working in a a non-for-profit, as a volunteer or in an organisation, I think that that's consistent across the board your concept around the definition of success and what happens after you leave um is is just beautiful and genius at the same time and my question to the listeners on this podcast is to get curious about that Um, if you were to leave tomorrow what's going to happen afterwards have you made a big enough impact have you created the space to allow others to shine or have you simply just been doing stuff? You know, what's what's the change that's happening after you leave? And with this this conversation that we've had around, particularly with the focus on charities and the international charities, setting up your own redundancy, again, as a concept, um, I think it can apply across the board, no matter whether you're in profit or not-for-profit, whether you're in startup land or in a big organization, around how do you set up? For your own redundancy, and and finally, um, I loved your comment about one of the tasks of leadership is to be the one that asks the uncomfortable questions. So before we leave today, um, you know we're often asked. Um, I, I know uh, my children are currently being asked this at school about what do you want to be when you grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, my question for you is, um, who do you want to be remembered
0: as? I. That is a tough question. Mm. I think the the thing, it's interesting that you raise that as a question, actually, because uh, I read a book every morning called The Daily Stoic um, by a guy whose name, I forget, Ryan something, I forget his surname. It's a wonderful book. Every day it gives a quote from a Stoic philosopher and then an explanation underneath. And uh, there was one a couple of days ago, I think, that came up with this topic about the futility of that question, actually, which is why do we care about what people care about us after we're gone? Wouldn't it be better to be um, not remembered but known when we're alive? Mm -hmm. So I think the question, you know, I'm I'm sort of being a bit picky here, but the question is really, you know, how do we want to be known when when I'm here? And how do we want people to feel around us? So I think I would like people to think that, to feel that, I make them feel good about themselves. I think that's the first thing. Um, That those are the most memorable people that make you feel like you are just very special. Um, So someone who's able to give that attention. Um, And then I think also someone who perhaps was obviously caring and compassionate, but also willing to challenge the status quo on the traditional ways in which we do this kind of giving work and thinking about what really matters as opposed to what feels good or what makes us look good. Um and then lastly um somebody I think who who lived out values. So I think to me that's really the key thing I mean underpinning all of this stuff is that the the closer you are aligned to your values and the decisions that you make every day and there are so many decisions we make, but you can almost number them up really and then go, well I made Ninety-five percent of them, you know, align to my values. That's a pretty good day. To me, that's really fulfilling. Someone who knows their values and acts it out in every single decision.
1: I love that way. For me, I would sum you up as somebody that is and has shown incredible courage and bravery in the decisions you've made and the work that you do. Somebody that is incredibly passionate about uh, the impact that they can have on other people to change the lives of others. And with that, somebody that I find incredibly inspiring and at the same time incredibly humble about the work that they're doing. It's been an absolute joy to speak to you over the last 30 minutes and um, I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Thanks, Thank so. you, way
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.